Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Have you joined the Travel Club yet? Well, I hope that you will. You'll be the first to know when we're on the go. You get to be part of some fantastic destinations, group trips, and you get to meet and travel with some awesome people. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and join in the fun. We've got Japan coming up in May. We have Peru coming up in August, and we're planning some other destinations for the rest of 2024, and we're already working on 2025. Well, today I have the honor and pleasure to be joined by a prolific curator and studied historian for civil rights. Ryan M. Jones is the associate curator at the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Prepare to be blown away. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But first, you know what time it is. It's time for some travel news. Jamaica is speaking out. The Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness and Sandals Resort's international chairman Adam Stewart responds to last week's U.S. State Department's update of its Level 3 travel advisory for Jamaica. The language of the reissued advisory, which did not elevate its threat level, nonetheless painted a dark picture of a country where violent crimes are common and sexual assaults occur frequently, including at all-inclusive resorts. Wholeness seemed genuinely perplexed by both its content and timing. Two weeks before the advisory was released, the Financial Times had written a glowing report about the island, calling it arguably one of the most remarkable and radical but underappreciated turnaround stories in economic history. Not only were economic metrics the envy of developing countries, but Holness said serious crime was down by 11% last year. Murders were down by 8%, rapes down 15%. The advisory runs counter to the fact that the general trajectory of crimes, particularly serious crimes, are all heading down. Across the board, he said, crime was at a 22-year low. The challenge we face is that everything that is said in the travel advisory runs counter to Jamaica's story of recovery. The Jamaica's story of coming to grips with the challenges of being a developing country, while acknowledging that its overall murder rate is still considered high, he also asserted that foreigners had little to fear. For the past five years, serious crimes against the 3 million annual U.S. visitors who came to vacation in Jamaica had held steady at 0.01%, far lower than the serious crime rates in many of the hometowns where visitors lived. This advisory came out of left field, Holmes added. It runs counter to the story of Jamaica in the last five years. It is not supported by the trend in statistics. Holness hadn't done a line-by-line comparison in the previous advisory, but the names of villages and Kingston neighborhoods labeled Do Not Travel were not unexpected. The Prime Minister said the government has invested heavily to ensure visitors are safe. When Sandals Resort's international chairman Adam Stewart was asked about the warning that sexual assaults occur frequently, At all-inclusive resorts, he was as perplexed by that statement as the Prime Minister was about other aspects of the report, stating, In our company, there is zero tolerance for it, he said, and he feels he would know if there were issues with other companies. With international standards across the board and best practices shared among the island's all-inclusives, The challenge we faced is that everything that is said in the travel advisory runs counter to Jamaica's story of recovery. Well, the Bahamas was another set of islands 
in the hot seat with travel warnings issued by the U.S. Bahamas government official pledge proactive approach after U.S. travel advisories urge increased caution when visiting the islands. The Bahamas government insists it remains a safe and welcoming destination for travelers despite a recent warning issued by the U.S. State Department. Bahamian government officials on December 30th issued a formal reply to the recent U.S. warnings that the islands have seen an increase in violent crimes. The government of the Bahamas is alert, attentive, and proactive to ensure that the Bahamas remains a safe and welcoming destination. A level two advisory was issued by the U.S. State Department on Friday, January 26. Such an advisory is a recommendation to exercise increased caution when visiting the specific destination. Though the Bahamas had been listed at a level two alert location for more than a year, recent concerns prompted U.S. officials to update the advisory. Violent crimes such as burglaries, armed robberies, and sexual assaults occur in both tourist and non-tourist areas, according to the advisory. Be vigilant when staying at short-term vacation rental properties where private security companies do not have a presence. In its official reply, the Bahamian government pointed out that its level two status has remained unchanged. Cruise ship traffic to the islands, meanwhile, remains unaffected by the advisories. Still, the Bahamian statement does outline a strategy for dealing with the increased attention. Officials say they're implementing a comprehensive approach that will focus on prevention, detection, prosecution, punishment, and rehabilitation. Las Vegas Airport introduces remote bag drop. Las Vegas's Harry Reid International Airport has introduced remote luggage drop service at its rental car center and Terminal 3 departures. The service will be available during peak hours for passengers on American Airlines, Delta Airlines, JetBlue, Southwest Airlines, and United Airlines. World traffic reached 94% of pre-pandemic levels in 2023. International airline passengers' traffic reached 94.1% of pre-pandemic levels in 2023 and rose 36.9% from 2022. The International Air Transport Association reported and hit 98.2% in the fourth quarter. Growth was especially strong in the Asian market, although recovery in the region still lags, reflecting that Asian governments were late to lift travel restrictions. United and Delta are embracing European rail connections. United Airlines and Delta Airlines have forged partnerships with European rail companies that allow passengers to book seamless onward train travel. The idea has not taken off in the United States, mainly due to the lack of convenient rail connections at airports. And Delta credit card holders are getting new perks. Delta Airlines and American Express are sweetening the perks that come with holding the Delta credit card. Cardholders will receive $200 flight credits and credits to use at restaurants and on rideshare apps. And those with premium cards will also get $2,500 in medallion qualifying dollars that help qualify for elite status. Well, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has initially come out in opposition to a proposal to raise the mandatory retirement age of pilots. More research is needed before increasing the retirement age to 67 from 65, the FAA has stated. It is crucial to provide the agency an opportunity to conduct research and determine mitigations, according to FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker. When it comes to raising the pilot retirement age, the FAA has made clear that a scientific and safety analysis must come first. That has not happened, according to Senator Maria Cantwell, the committee chair. Aviation safety is paramount, and now is not the time to take a shortcut. The U.S. House in July voted for raising the retirement age. However, it failed to pass the bill in time and has since been extended until next month. Transportation Security Pete Buttigieg told Congress last month that the FAA has no such data to support such increase to the retirement age. 
He said this would be above the international standard and will have consequences for U.S. air carriers. This means that older pilots would likely not be able to fly many, if not all, international routes due to age limits in other countries. Pilot unions oppose raising the age, but the Regional Airline Association supports it. Its members have arguably been most impacted by pilot shortages. Raising the age would allow retention of more experienced captains who can in turn fly alongside and mentor new first officers, helping to stabilize attrition. Denver Airport opens upgraded security checkpoint. Denver International Airport has opened a new security checkpoint that offers more lanes and technological enhancements to speed travelers through screening. They can use digital IDs and facial recognition, as well as bins for carry-on baggage that replenish themselves. Applications are open for Southwest Airlines scholarship. Southwest Airlines has begun accepting applications for the 2024 Community Scholarships, which will award $5,000 per year to select students pursuing careers in aviation industry. Southwest also offers a separate scholarship for dependents of employees. American Cruise Lines will be sailing its American Revolution 11-day itineraries round trip out of Washington, D.C. in 2024. The only cruise ship that sails the Potomac into Washington, the American Constitution, will depart from the wharf and sail the Chesapeake Bay, the Potomac, and the York River with calls in the historic parts of Yorktown, Williamsburg, Jamestown, Mount Vernon, Annapolis, and Norfolk. Cruises on the American Revolution itinerary will run in the spring and fall, beginning March 26, and including cherry blossom season. They all include entertainment and enrichment, as well as regionally inspired cuisine, featuring Maryland's famous blue crabs. Excursions in Washington include guided tours of the Capitol and the Smithsonian Museums, as well as the Arlington National Cemetery, the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad exhibit, Colonial Williamsburg, the Jamestown Settlement, and Virginia Beach, and an authentic sailing on Skipjack through the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. Wave season specials include savings up to $1,500 plus complimentary airfare on select spring dates. This is also an option to add a pre-cruise hotel stay at the Four Seasons in D.C. The largest small ship and river cruise operator in the United States, American Cruise Lines, will sail 19 ships in 35 states with more than 50 domestic itineraries. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, I'm joined by Ryan M. Jones, Associate Curator at the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you look at the places that we go so that you can be the first to know and you can join us as well. So don't forget to join the travel club. TravelingCulturati.com. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Black history is history. February is just a reminder. My hope for the future is that history is inclusive and that tours are inclusive. We should not have a Black history tour or the need for a Black history tour. Tours in general, especially American historical tours, should be told as they happened and not redacted to glorify one group or diminish another. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Well, I am super excited because it is Black History Month. And while I always say Black History Month, 724-365, because it's history, folks. It's not just Black History, it's history. And this is just a time that we give special attention to this history. 
and we focus on it, we highlight it, we celebrate it, and we understand its significance and we keep it relevant. And we're going to talk about all of those things today. So I am super excited to have my guest on, Ryan M. Jones, the Associate Curator at the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. He began his work at the museum as a docent and later developed the museum's docent training program. He's also serving as the museum's historian, validating interpretation and reviewing scholarly content shared by the museum. Well, hello, Mr. Ryan, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ms. Harley. It's a pleasure to be with you all this afternoon. So t- tell us a little bit more about yourself. What was your journey to history and civil rights and getting to the Lorraine Motel? Certainly. Well, it started as a child. I was in the second grade and did a book report on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I was always fascinated with the man, the way he spoke, the way he carried himself. And what was his overall reason for advocating for civil and human rights? You know, at that age, it was a culture shock to understand that at a period in our country, people that looked like me were treated differently and unfairly. Yet, you know, knowing that that happened in my parents' lifetime, it just became something that was extremely fascinating to me. And so as the older that I got the more advanced that I would read about everything pertaining to not only Dr. King, but the American civil rights story as a whole. And when I realized that Dr. King was a victim of an assassination, and that assassination happened in the place that I was born, Memphis, Tennessee, it really gave me an extra element to continue to study this story. And so as a former athlete that didn't get the genetics to grow, you know, I really fell back into my love and appreciation for the history of the United States and attending a university and taking courses. It just became something that became spiritual and a part of my DNA. And so 14 years ago, I was able to start as a tour guide at the museum where I had the humbling privilege to take many walks of life through this journey, through the modern civil rights story. And and a lot of some of those people were the leaders and the activists themselves, you know, so imagine being a 24-year-old kid and you, you walk through this museum with the likes of John Lewis, the likes of Diane Nash. Julian Bond, Andrew Young, and and the list continues. And so continuing my time through the museum, seeing it through its different phases and eras and renovations, it's really a job. It's really, it's a job, but it's something that for a large amount of time I was doing for free. So it's such an incredible honor and privilege to be able to call that place my employment. I mean, amazing. And what strikes me the most is that you were interested in this space and time in history because I just feel today that people think, and I hear this often, which is the reason that I'm saying it, that that was then and this is now. So you really looked at it as its relevance now. Yes, yes, absolutely. This story, it didn't end on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in April 1968. And to many people, the story of the civil rights movement or the Black freedom struggle as a whole, it wasn't ancient and it wasn't prehistoric. And it has continued generation through generation. And you're beginning to see, even in our contemporary time now, that a lot of these same ideas and philosophies and ideologies on the issue of race in the United States and the story of discrimination are beginning to recycle. We've seen that enhance and reemergence of some of those practices that are put in place to create a barrier of systematic discrimination against people. I mean, and now it's expanding outside of the African-American population as well. But it's equally extremely, extremely important to 
acknowledge the past, which is what the museum does, but also having the museum serve as this destination, as you may call it, or it serves as this staple in which people who are affected and are concerned and are interested with our nation's history, they come to our site because they are familiar that at our site, a historical event that changed the course of American history happened. And this is a place where people can come and reflect and educate, but then take what they see inside of this museum and apply it in all facets of their daily lives. Absolutely. And when you said at 24, walking into the museum and being surrounded by these icons and these change makers. I just wondered, did it come really, though, from your parents? Were these conversations that you had in your home that even led you there? Right. It, it, that's, that's true. You know, I remember at that, around that same time, early 1990s, there was a company, and I believe that it's still in, in service. It was called Scholastic Book Reader. And I always shared a passion for reading. I think I got that from both of my parents who were avid readers. And I remember one day the book that I wanted my mother to get me, it was called A Picture Book of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was a children's appropriate book on Dr. King. And I, and I read it over and over and over and over and over again. But I remember the very first time I read it and when I figured out at the end where this man was assassinated, I cried. And I went and I got in my mom's arms and I didn't understand, mom, why did this mean man wanna kill Dr. King, who from all that I've gathered at this very innocent age, tried to do good things. And, you know, I can't imagine how difficult that must've been for her to have to explain to me, you know, this young impressionable child who was interested in this person who did good things, that this man was killed because of fear and hate and because of racism. But at that age, I couldn't connect those dots. And so what she said to me after that, and it continued to linger on, was that Dr. King made a decision early on to want to do something that would provide positive change. And she said, whatever it is that God has put you on this place to do, make sure you do it with a purpose. And that's what I've tried to live under. And the way that I feel with the story is that working at the museum, I and so many others of my colleagues get to serve as narrators of this story that's greater than all of us. And there's nothing more of a privilege to be able to continue the legacy of these fascinating and courageous individuals who simply, again, made a choice. Sometimes these choices would be fatal, but if those things didn't occur, we may not have seen the advancement that we see today. In some stances, we look at children that were integrating once segregated schools. You know, if they not done that, I may not have gotten the privilege to have a decent free education uh, 30 years after they were attempting to do just the same thing. And so it was something that was instilled in me and my parents. You know, I, I remember asking my dad, about, you know, what was this book that he was always reading? And it was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And he said, one day when you become of age, you'll read it. And in a way, that's one of the greatest reads I've ever read. It really helped me shape the landscape for how to be a man and what it means to be a Black man in America. Well, yeah. And kudos to your parents, because I think the reason that significance and relevance today is questioned is because the conversations aren't in the households as much as they should be. Was that more so for you because you're a native, is it Memphian? Is, is that what, yeah. <laughs> for being from <laughs> Memphis? Yeah. I think so. I think it had a lot to do with that. And I also think that my parents' upbringing had a lot to do with that. Both of my parents are descendants from the Mississippi Delta. And so both my paternal and maternal grandparents, they were right in line with what's going on down there. The state of Mississippi 
specifically was the most segregated and oppressed state in the United States dating back to the end of the Civil War. And I remember as a kid, as I got older, I explained a story about when I was seven years old and I became emotional reading a book on Dr. King. But when I became an adolescent, I really think the turning point was around the seventh or eighth grade. And my mother was a, a collector of Jet Magazine and loving books, reading about Black history, Black excellence. I would read my mother's Jet Magazines before she could. And I was just going through one of these editions and I came across this picture. And it was something that I almost dropped the magazine. It's something that I had never seen before. And then I saw this before and after, and I saw one picture and I said, he kind of looks like me. He looks like he's my age. And then I saw what happened after. And of course, this was the horrific photograph of Emmett Till laying in his coffin after being lynched in Mississippi. Mm. And I remember going to my mom again and saying, mom, what is this? This is around the time, this was around the same area that grandma grew up in. And again, I saw that look of concern on my mother's face, having to explain to myself that this little boy who was only 14 years old would be killed in this way because he was black. And that was the driving force that I said, okay, you can take away Dr. King, who knew he was involved in uh, civil rights activity. He was a marked man. But now here's a child who travels to this part of the country and is murdered because he has an interaction with a white woman. And so that right there was really, that was the turning point for me to say, okay, any and everything that I can offer to become educated on this story and then to spread and continue that story, it started when I saw that photograph. And how shocking that was for all of us to see yeah. that, right? And I'll talk to you a little bit more about Emmett Till because you have a very unique journey with Emmett Till as well. And I'll talk a little bit more about your involvement and in some of the contributions that you've made for Emmett Till and that part of the history. But I want to get back to the Lorraine Motel. It's along the Civil Rights Trail. What are we talking about when we say the Civil Rights Trail geographically? The trail, it's an opportunity to recognize these historical sites that partook in this entire civil rights struggle. And a lot of the civil rights movement and the ideas of fighting to end discrimination in America took place across the country. But it was in the Deep South, the ex-Confederacy, where many of these stories took place. And when you think of the study of the civil rights movement, you know, and some scholars assert that it begins in Montgomery, Alabama, when this courageous and beautiful, brave woman named Rosa Parks decides to not give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. It takes you on this trail to Little Rock, Arkansas, at the site of Central High School, where nine African-American college students are wanting to integrate a school that was once segregated. It takes you to Greensboro, North Carolina, where four African-American students attending North Carolina A&T University sit down at a lunch counter to be served, knowing ahead that they wouldn't be. It takes you to the city of Birmingham, Alabama, where hundreds and thousands of young people between the ages of eight and 18 are walking through the streets of Kelly Ingram Park, leaving their hub, the 16th Street Baptist Church, who are attacked by Bull Connor's water hoses. And those images changed the course of society, leading to a passage of a Civil Rights Act of 1964, which we will be celebrating this year at 60th anniversary. It takes you down to Selma, Alabama, along the south, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where the late great John Lewis and Hosea Williams stand trying to march 
from the city of Selma to the state capital of Montgomery simply for wanting an American internal demand, the right to vote, which will become the catalyst for the passes of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And then it brings you to the city of Memphis, the capital of the Delta. Memphis is the first junction in which African-Americans that were leaving the rural deep south along the great migration in the early part of the 20th century, they would bring you to Memphis. And it's here where men, sanitation workers who happened to be Black, were simply wanting to work in safe working environments and to be paid a decent wage. They carried signs that said, I am a man. And this is what brings Dr. King to this city 56 years ago on support of the common man. But of course, while he's there supporting the common man, he's taken down by this climate of hate, an assassin's bullet on the balcony of a Memphis motel. And so when you connect all of those stories, we just briefly went through 13 years of American history. Each site has an important role to play in this story because each site, there was some sort of advancement after these events occurred. Listening to you, not only document or dot geographically, but alongside of that or congruently with events, it really just brings it to life. And I always say traveling is learning. And this is where we get an opportunity in the travel industry to marry those two, education and travel. And so travel should entertain. It should also educate you. And significantly with the civil rights trail and then culminating here in Memphis and telling us what brought Dr. King to Memphis. Because I think so many times we hear so many stories and we see iconic images that give us those snapshots in time, but sometimes we forget about connecting all the dots and how it all culminated. And then what led to, of course, the assassination you know, really kind of looking at it through a more narrow lens, if you will, it just makes it, I think, that much more powerful. So one of those iconic images would be the leaders and those who were part of the movement standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel and pointing. Tell us about that image. Sure. You know, Dr. King, the night before you know, when he arrived in Memphis, he was feeling extremely emotionally withdrawn for a better part of a year. He took the ultimate stance, which was extremely unpopular, and he criticized the United States involvement in the Vietnam War. And in that moment there, that one speech that he delivers at the Riverside Church in New York City, he is completely alienated from President Johnson, the federal government, Black militants, even nonviolent civil rights leaders wanted to completely disassociate themselves with him. And he changed. He evolved as this leader. You know, people think that Dr. King was all about having a dream. But, you know, he made the quote in the statement. He says that if America continues to use its financial resources on a war that's about hate, America will approach spiritual death. This is not the MLK that people make quotes about on the third Monday of every January. And so he himself began to evolve as a man in his philosophies and ideologies. And that's what brings him to Memphis. But, you know, the end of that speech, he delivered a speech the night before he was killed. And he concluded in that speech and he said, you know, I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And this is probably one of the most charismatic orators of the 20th century, maybe in all of American history. And for him to say that, those were those parting words to everyone that was in the Mason Temple that night. To the next day, I have been the privilege to talk to a lot of his aides in the last couple of years. They said that he had preached this fear of death out of his soul. It was as if all of this stress and pressure was lifted off of his shoulders. And that this was one of the most joyous occasions that they had seen him in at weeks at that time. And Dr. King is 
preparing to go and eat dinner at a local Memphis minister's home. And he steps outside, you know, a young Jesse Jackson is below. Andrew Young's there. Ralph Abernathy's there. James Bevel is there and all these other incredible individuals. And so one of the last things that Dr. King says before he's prepared to go to dinner was there was a saxophonist who's a native Memphian named Ben Branch. And he says, Ben, I want you to play my favorite tune tonight on the saxophone. I want you to play it real pretty. And this will be Precious Lord, Take My Hand which we know by Mrs. Mahalia Jackson, the great Mahalia Jackson. And then the very last thing that he says, his chauffeur, Mr. Solomon Jones, calls up and says, Doc, you should go and grab your top coat. It's a bit cold tonight. And he's leaning on the balcony and he says, do you really think I'll need a coat? And in that exact moment, this loud register erupts in the air of South Memphis and Dr. King falls back and his aides run to him. And ironically, there are dozens of law enforcement. The Memphis police and Shelby County Sheriff's officers are running towards the balcony where Dr. King is laying in a pool of blood. And his aides are saying, no, we have him. You go that way. And meaning in the direction of where they thought the shot came from. That's the backstory behind that photograph. That photograph was taken about a minute and a half after the shot rang out. And it was taken by a South African journalist who was staying two rooms down from Dr. King, a man by the name of Joseph Lau, who was hoping that after dinner, he could secure an interview with Dr. King. And instead, he takes one of the most infamous images in all of American history. Just amazing. And I have to add that you are a great orator yourself because <laughs> oh, you have me wrapped up in the details and the story. But I think that in itself brings it to life and makes us want to know more. But you said something that was very significant about how King was changing. And we all know him from the I Have a Dream speech. But there's some other speeches that he gave and some other stances that he took that led to his assassination as well. And can you talk to some of those changes that he experienced and some of those other speeches that he gave that were far beyond the I Have a Dream? Definitely. Under lower division history courses, you had to analyze and dissect his letter from a Birmingham jail, which was a direct response to criticism from clergymen. You know, we think of Dr. King as the civil rights leader and icon, but this man was a, a minister of faith. His training was in. That's what his, his first job position was as an adult at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And he was coming to the city just to have in segregation and downtown businesses. And, and you know, he questions his own contemporaries of faith. And he says, look, this is 100 years removed from when President Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation. 100 years later, African-Americans are still denied those constitutional citizenship rights. And that at the time, you know, a letter from a Birmingham jail was seen as kind of eye-opening from this young 34-year-old after the passes of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, Dr. King began to delve into other issues of the time. You know, the very first time he travels outside of the South to leave a campaign was in the summer of 1966 in Chicago, Illinois. And it was to confront the discriminatory practices within the Chicago slums. And it was there where he was met by a different type of volatile violence, more so than the type that he encountered when he was in Montgomery, Birmingham, and Selma, and other places in the South. He began to see that we did all of these things to live in an integrated society. You know, it didn't cost $1 to integrate a lunch counter, but now individuals in the United States can't afford to eat in that lunch counter. So he began to delve and attack the 
discrimination within economic injustice. He began to speak on the overwhelmingly amounts of people stricken by severe poverty in the United States. When I come back, we'll have the culture report. And that is going to be a continuation of our conversation with Mr. Jones. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you look at the places that we go so that you can be the first to know and you can join us as well. So don't forget to join the travel club, TravelingCulturati.com. I am super excited to have my guest on, Ryan M. Jones, the associate curator at the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. After the passes of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, Dr. King began to delve into other issues of the time. The very first time he travels outside of the South to lead a campaign was in the summer of 1966 in Chicago, Illinois. And it was to confront the discriminatory practices within the Chicago slums. And it was there where he was met by a different type of volatile violence, more so than the type that he encountered when he was in Montgomery, Birmingham, and Selma, and other places in the South. He began to see that we did all of these things to live in an integrated society, you know, it didn't cost $1 to integrate a lunch counter, but now individuals in the United States can't afford to eat in that lunch counter. So he began to delve and attack the discrimination within economic injustice. He began to speak on the overwhelmingly amounts of people stricken by severe poverty in the United States. On December the 4th, 1967, Dr. King proposed, which would become his final campaign, which was known as the Poor People's Campaign. He was extremely successful four years earlier when he brought 250,000 Americans. It wasn't just him. There were others that were contributing to what we know as the March on Washington. But he, he was the lead speaker that day, which is when he gave his I Have a Dream speech. And seeing the success from it, he decided to go back to the nation's capital, but this time bring 500,000 people of all races and ethnicities, old to young, they were a caravan from all walks of the United States to the nation's capital, and they were camp out at the National Mall to demand better financial compensation. You know, the same reason that he came to Memphis was because those sanitation workers were making a little over a dollar an hour. They could work up to 90 hours a week and still qualify for government assistance. And you see, when Dr. King begins to speak out against the redistribution of the wealth, this triggered the nerves of those that opposed him, different from a way that any white supremacist could have done. This was his direct attack against the United States government. So when we look at what he was doing in the final year of his life, and the unusual circumstances of how he was assassinated, you have to start with what it was that he was advocating for during this particular period. And, you know, when we talk about the redistribution of the wealth, he made the statement just two months before his assassination. He said, the United States gave this promissory note to all of its people. And now, several hundred years later, we haven't received anything. Well, I'm here to tell you that we're here and we are coming to get our check. That's the atmosphere in which 
his assassination leads up to because he changes his tone. Was he a victim of violence before that? Absolutely. His home was bombed three times. He was arrested over 29 times in 13 short years. But those forces that opposed him went to a different level when he began to speak out on topics not relating to civil and human rights. And it's kind of how you see today when we see celebrities using their platform to confront racial injustice, where they say or they tell athletes to just shut up and dribble. That was going on to Dr. King. They were saying, just shut up and preach your pulpit on Sunday mornings. Well, my theme for the rest of this month is going to be, we're here. And we're here to get our check. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it may be all year. Maybe that's my 2024 motto, because as you also mentioned earlier, and thank you for the date sure. <laughs> calculation, that it's 60 years anniversary for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So again, let's get back to the Lorraine Motel itself. Was that a meeting place in general? when the leaders came to Memphis or was it a green book hotel sure. where black folks could stay? It was literally both of them. The Lorraine was born out of humble beginnings. The building in which the Lorraine Motel once stood was a, actually it was a white only hotel. The problem with that was that that particular section of the city was a predominantly black section. And so two power businessmen and woman couple named Walter and Lori Bailey, they purchased that building and they renamed it as the Lorraine. And they chose the name Lorraine after their favorite song by legendary artist Nat King Cole, his version of Sweet Lorraine. So that's how the name Lorraine Motel came about. And you mentioned Victor Hugo Green's, Dr. Victor Hugo Green's Green Book. And the Lorraine Motel was a reoccurring destination in this book. Of course, we know the Green Book was this pamphlet, this booklet in which you could use your destination without fear of retaliation. Once you cross south of the Mason-Dixon line, African-Americans were subjected to not able to ride in an integrated car or a lunch counter or anything in public life. And so when people would travel in and out of the city of Memphis, if you were black and if you were just an everyday common person or you were the top celebrity in the world, you came to the Lorraine Motel. It was a state-of-the-art establishment that had a five-star service. The Baileys had one of the greatest eateries in the city of Memphis at that time. And if you were just a normal person, you could walk outside of your room and you could see a young Aretha Franklin. You could see a young Wilson Pickett. As a matter of fact, I was brought up Wilson Pickett of Stax Records. He and Steve Cropper wrote a hit song called In the Midnight Hour. That song was written in the Lorraine Motel. Eddie Floyd, who hit song Knock on Wood. It too was composed at the Lorraine Motel. One of my all-time favorite singers, the late Sam Cooke, traveled and stayed at the Lorraine Motel. And it was in May 1961 that Sam was scheduled to give a concert here in the city of Memphis. But the promoter wanted Sam to give a concert to a segregated audience. And at that time, Sam said no. Either I'm going to give one performance to an integrated audience or I'm not going to do it. And he makes that decision and doesn't do it. And he stays at the Lorraine Motel and goes on to the next show two days later. But it was a meeting place. You know, it was a place where African-Americans could go and be treated as first class citizens for the very first time. And it also attracted attention of Dr. King. We know that Martin Luther King's first visit to the Lorraine Motel came in June of 1966. After James Meredith, the very first Black man to enroll at the University of Mississippi, was ambushed in June of 1966, Dr. King, Floyd McKissick of the Congress of Racial Equality, and one of my favorites, a young activist named Stokely Carmichael, they come to the Lorraine Motel. And they go inside of room 307 
and they strategize how to continue James Meredith's march since he was wounded. Of course, James Meredith wasn't killed that day. And out of that strategy session, this young, vocal, Stokely Carmichael, days later, calls for Black power down in Greenwood, Mississippi. And we know that two years later, it's where Dr. King came back to stay on support of the striking sanitation workers. And the Lorraine becomes this backdrop of this tragic event that happens to the Lorraine. And not only was Dr. King's assassination a tragedy, on the same day of the assassination, just an hour after the shot rang out and Dr. King was pronounced dead, Mrs. Bailey, the co-owner, she has a heart attack from being so stricken by grief that she goes into a coma and she passes away five days later on Tuesday, April 9th, the very same day that Dr. King was interred in Atlanta after his public memorials at Ebenezer Baptist Church and, of course, the Morehouse College. And so out of those tragedies, the Lorraine Motel, it becomes this destitute location. The lavish, the luxurious of it was plagued by the assassination. And by the time of the early 1980s, the Lorraine was forced to move into foreclosing proceedings. But three visionaries in the city of Memphis realized the importance of not letting the Lorraine Motel die in that manner. There were talks early on that the entire property would be completely demolished. But one of my mentors, the late D'Army Bailey, saw this visionary of preserving the site where this historical event took place, but to create this educational facility in which people could come inside of this place where this tragic event happens and tells this empowering yet complicated story of a people who showed the ultimate courage and resilience of the Black freedom struggle. And out of that, was the birth of the National Civil Rights Museum. Mr. Ryan M. Jones, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here and to be talking to you today. And if you haven't toured the National Civil Rights Museum, please make that journey to the city of Memphis. Culturati, this is what I want to say to you. How about a group trip? to Memphis and the Lorraine Motel. Absolutely has to be a stop. <laughs> Sounds like it's in the works, Mr. Jones. <laughs> well, welcome. I look forward. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.